Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. We're now at about 46% who are fully vaccinated and almost 60% who have gotten at least one dose. But as vaccination numbers continue to climb, there is a segment of the population where COVID cases are on the rise. Children. COVID is becoming a childhood disease and at a time when these new variants have much higher viral burdens and therefore people are likely to get sicker. Children have composed over 16,000 hospitalizations for COVID. About 300 have died. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Monday, May the 24th, 2021. The World Health Organization estimates that somewhere between six and eight million people worldwide have died from the COVID pandemic, a much higher number than officially reported by countries around the world. But there is some positive news closer to home, and we're going to share that today. The numbers of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths continue to decline in the U.S., well, here to discuss with us again today and to answer some uh, listener questions as well as Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert from Mayo Clinic. Hi, Greg. Good morning, Helena. Happy welcome. Monday. Yeah, welcome to Monday. <laughs> Tell me what's going on in the world of COVID. Uh, lots of things. And, you know, uh, one thing that's really important as we talk about COVID is things are getting more and more nuanced. So, for example, when we look at, um, at the U.S., in, in the last week, so I'm talking about a week's time frame, we've had about 176,000 new cases and just under 4,000 new deaths. That's quite a decrease from our highs, you know, uh, say a year ago or oh boy, so. Boy, it sounds like a lot still. But, that's still. but that's still a lot. And while that's a substantial decrease at the population level, there are areas of the country where we're still seeing rises in cases. So it is very uh, context and geographic nuanced uh, compared to just hearing an overall U.S. total. Mm -hmm. How are we doing with vaccination rates, Greg? You know, that's a, that's a place that is both uh, cause for celebration and concern. Again, again, this nuance. When we look at the number of vaccinees, so, and you have to be careful of the numbers here. If we look at vaccine eligibles, okay, so just people who are eligible to get a vaccine, we're now at about 46% um, who are fully vaccinated mm -hmm. and almost 60% who have gotten at least one dose. Now, if you translate that to numbers of, well, what about for the whole population? Right. Fully vaccinated is only uh, 40%, and at least one dose is at about 50%. Wow, not what we'd like to be seeing. No, right. We'd still like to see it higher. Um, I think we're doing well with the 12 to 15-year-olds. Almost four and a half million kids of that age have oh, already gotten vaccinated. So we're doing well there but we are bumping up against those who are vaccine hesitant, who have questions mm -hmm. and those who reject vaccines. Well, Greg, I saw that there's been uh, some really unique um, measures that states have been putting into place yeah. to try to um, induce people to get vaccinated. For instance, I saw an article that in Ohio, 
uh, a couple of people were going to win the lottery yeah. for getting vaccinated. And they had in one day as many uh, vaccinations as they had in the three weeks prior after they introduced that. I, I, I'm laughing. I saw that too, a million dollar lottery to get vaccinated. Well, you know, that, that raises a lot of questions in my mind. At, at one level, I'm happy for anything that works, yeah. right? At another level, it kind of tells you this really might not in all cases be about uh, legitimate concerns over right. the vaccine, or at least maybe somebody feels like, uh, you know, I don't think they're safe, but I'm willing to risk it for a million dollars. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. Say, Greg, we have used in the past this term herd immunity, and you talked very specifically about percentage of people who've been vaccinated and thus protected. Um, one of our readers had a very astute question that when we talk about this herd immunity, do we include people who haven't yet been vaccinated but have had COVID-19 and are waiting to get vaccinated because they would be also um, protected at this point, correct? They, they would. We don't know for how long, but that listener is exactly right. Here's the difficulty. I'm going to keep using the word nuance today. Here's the nuance in that is the number of vaccinees is easy to track. We have a registry, so we know how many doses we've given out. In terms of people who have been COVID infected, the only ones we know about are those who got tested or who got sick enough to go to a hospital. We don't know about the asymptomatics, the people with mild uh, symptomatic disease who never got tested, never reported. We certainly know there are lots of those, but the, but the listener is right that herd immunity in the short term will be the equation of those previously infected plus those vaccinated. And we believe that number is going to have to be in any given geographic area, somewhere north of 80 plus percent. I, I wanna note that in Manus, Brazil, where they were having just awful outbreaks, and where they estimated from blood uh, donors that about 76 to 80 percent of the population had evidence of immunity, they were still acquiring infections. On top of it, with some of these variants, we see a decrease in the level of immunity. So, you know, as we get toward this fall and winter is when we'll really have a better sense of are we at herd immunity and are we stopping any resurgence of these variants? And then Greg, speaking of variants, I saw that uh, um, I mentioned that Anthony, Dr. Anthony Fauci had stated that whether um, we will need booster shots kind of depends on variants. Can you explain what he meant by that? Yeah, what he's saying and, 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 and for simplicity, so please nobody mistake this, we don't really know these numbers, but for simplicity, Let's just say that you need an antibody titer of one to 100. Well, many of these vaccines are inducing antibody titers one to 2,000 or even higher. But there's a spread from perhaps a, a, a frail elderly person who has a lot of medical conditions whose antibody level might be anywhere from zero to one in 2,000. Young, healthy people like yourself, you're going to be up in the 2,000, 3,000 range. Thank now, you for saying young. Yeah, yeah you are. <laughs> and you're very active, so I know. Um, 
with these variants, so let's say you need a level of one to 100. With these variants, instead of uh, needing a level of one to 100, maybe you need a level of one to 200, or maybe your level of one to 2000 is being reduced by a thousand, uh, by 10 to 60 fold. So they're gonna be some people who cross that line into not being protected. In addition, we don't know the long-term durability of either getting previously infected or having gotten vaccine. So that's why I think he's being cautious and appropriately so in saying, we don't know what level protects you yet. We're getting closer. We, we do know that these variants reduce the amount of neutralizing antibody that you develop. And we don't know how long that immunity will last. So it's kind of a complicated matrix of factors that we'll only know as we continue to move into an era where we have more and more variants circulating. Okay. Um, and then Greg, tell me what we know about whether these <clears throat> vaccines can be mixed and matched at this point. Well, we don't have a lot of information. There has been one study done in the UK that looked at um, uh, a first dose of a uh, ad-vectored vaccine, the AstraZeneca, and a second dose of uh, mRNA vaccine. They found, not unexpectedly, excellent immunity after that, but at the price of a little more reactogenicity, more fever, more achiness, more pain and swelling, more not feeling well for a day or two, maybe sometimes three. Um, so, but, but I think the immunologic principle, can you boost with one kind of vaccine, prime with a different, the answer, early answer is yes. Interesting. All right, Greg, let's open the mailbag. I, oh, have no. some, I have some of those questions that may stump you from some of our very okay. savvy, savvy listeners. Okay. The first listener um, asks, I would love to hear a succinct description of how the mRNA that is administered in the vaccine does its job in the cells. Some of this individual's friends are hesitant because they wonder how long the mRNA stays in their bodies. And will this cause autoimmune issues down the road because the antibodies will keep seeing other proteins on the surface of our cells? Because the antibodies will see other proteins. In other words, would those mRNA, uh, the, I think is what they're asking, would this, okay. uh, would this immunization cause their body to react to other proteins? Okay. So um, first of all, after 260 million doses in the U.S., we have not seen any evidence of the induction of autoimmune diseases, nor have we seen any significant exacerbation of existing autoimmune diseases. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. How do the mRNA vaccines work? The mRNA is actually just a short genetic blueprint, chemically synthesized, a short little genetic blueprint for one piece of the virus called the S protein. That's enclosed in a lipid particle called a nanoparticle. You inject it into the muscle, the muscle takes up that lipid nanoparticle, the lipid nanoparticle dissolves, the mRNA then gets what's called translated into that S protein. That mRNA, mRNA lasts in your muscle cell a few hours, that's all. And then that uh, S protein gets displayed on the outside of your cells 
immune surveillance cells see that and react to it by producing B cell, that is antibody, and T cell, that is cellular immunity. So there's no long lasting uh, amount of that on your cells. It cannot get into the nucleus of your cell. You hear some people raising concerns over whether right. it might get into the nucleus or into the DNA. There's zero evidence that that can happen. So it, it appears to be an overall very, I should say, extraordinary uh, safe vaccine. And as we've seen, extraordinary efficacy. Excellent. Well, here's a question about efficacy from uh, another listener. What does Dr. Poland believe the real life efficacy of the mRNA vaccines is in reducing asymptomatic and symptomatic infection? Does he believe that it is greater than 90% for asymptomatic infection and more than that for symptomatic infection? What do you think the true numbers are? Yeah, well, the, the listener is astute in using the term real world effectiveness. So we know numbers from tightly controlled clinical trials, but real world effectiveness refers to now when everybody's eligible. So you could be severely immunocompromised to a young, healthy 18 year old with no medical problems and everything in between. So there is, I'm, I'm always hesitant to say there's one number because then people think, well, I have that number. The reality of it is that number is a point estimate. It's a, it's a best estimate at a population level for how well it works. That's point one. Point two is it depends on what we mean by effectiveness. If you mean death, fatal disease, severe disease, hospitalization, we, we are in excess of 95 to even up to 100% effectiveness if you have a healthy immune system. If you mean symptomatic disease, we're probably in the 95 to 97 plus percent, depending on the health of your immune system. If you mean asymptomatic, we're yet a little bit lower. So you see it's very effective against death, severe disease, really very good against symptomatic disease, yet a notch lower against asymptomatic disease. Interesting. All right, next question. This listener thanks you for your weekly updates and has a question about vaccine selection. This individual is a senior citizen who had COVID in January, required hospitalization, has many medical comorbidities. They were told to wait 90 days before receiving the vaccine after having COVID, and have been concerned about uh, the potential for side effects. Wonder if there is one particular vaccine or another that they should seek. Yeah, I, you know, there's really no uh, individual vaccine recommendation. Uh, first of all, if that listener is listening, I'm, I'm sorry to hear what they've been through. And, and I know the concern after being hospitalized with COVID, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, that's pretty frightening. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that we wait a minimum of 90 days before immunizing. There are uh, people who have gotten previously COVID infected and then get reinfected. What that reinfection rate will be, particularly in the, in the type of patient that you described, in the setting of these new variants, we don't yet know. Logically higher than it was with the uh, less severe variants that we had a year ago. So I would recommend immunization in, in a case like this. When you ask about side effects, 
The side effects are very likely to be there, though I will say if there's any advantages to getting older, it's that after the age of 65, the reactogenicity is less than in people younger than 65. So what, what would be average? Average would be that you would get the first dose, likely have no issues other than a sore arm that lasts a day or two. But with the second dose, you'd get a more sore arm, probably a low-grade fever on average, not really feeling well for a day or two, all of which resolves on its own. Greg, I have a follow-up question to that. And that is that when we originally had started talking about individuals delaying have a, having a vaccination after they had had COVID, yeah. we were talking about the availability of vaccines as being one of the concerns for having right. those individuals who had um, some um, immunity now to hold off. Yeah. What is the reason now, if we have vaccine available, for having uh, individuals who've had COVID wait to get vaccinated? Yeah, that, that recommendation really hasn't changed. Um, Though, it, as you point out, it's not an issue of vaccine availability. Anybody who is age eligible can walk in to any of these existing clinics and get a vaccine. I do think that, and we see this with other vaccines, in general, we like to wait an interval of time so that you're not increasing the reactogenicity of the vaccine by having high pre-existing antibody levels. I would not be surprised that in the near future, we potentially lengthen out that 90 days. Nobody has data for that yet. And part of the reluctance is these new variants. We now have the uh, so-called B1617 or quote India variant mm -hmm. uh, in the US. There are documented cases. What, what will be the effect of that in somebody, let's say, who is older, like, like our last uh, listener, who's older, has a lot of medical conditions? Are they going to be more likely to get infected with a more severe variant like that, and therefore we, we don't dare change that interval? I, I don't know yet. Uh, in a young, healthy person, I don't have any problem with delaying it longer than 90 days. They're gonna have high levels of antibody. They're not gonna get reinfected in that, or highly unlikely to get reinfected in that three to four month time period. Okay. Our next two questions come from uh, different listeners who have questions about uh, getting children vaccinated. And so I'm gonna combine them a little bit for you. This individual wants to know, how can I encourage my grown children to have grandkids ages 12 to 15 vaccinated? The adult children have had their vaccinations, but seem reluctant to make that decision for uh, their children. And then the next listener says, how do we know that these vaccines are safe for children long-term? It's a big responsibility to make that decision for a, a younger person. And how would you advise? Well, first of all, I'm sympathetic with that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot not known. There are a lot of nuances here. There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation at the same time that we're collecting information as we go along. So uh, when you get to the 12 to 15 year olds, we don't have data on 260 million people. We have data on about four, four and a half million. Now that, that's larger 
than we would have for any other vaccine. But I, I get that people feel these are very novel vaccines and, and they're concerned. So, so here's to me what, what you're weighing. A theoretical risk of the unknown, and I can't quantitate that by definition, and the known high risk of getting COVID. So what does that look like? Let's, let's localize it to the US. What's happening with children in the US? Yeah. Well, the COVID virus has infected a known 4 million children. It's much more than that. But because with the previous variant, children tended to be asymptomatic, they didn't go in for testing. Right. With these new variants, that's a different story. COVID is becoming, because most of us adults have gotten vaccinated, COVID is becoming a childhood disease. And at a time when these new variants have much higher viral burdens and therefore people are likely to get sicker. sicker. Um, children have composed over 16,000 hospitalizations for COVID. About 300 have died. Now, I, I know that 300 may not sound like a high number compared to what we've seen around the world with adults, but you know, the, the, the death of anybody, much less the death right. of a child is, is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And just to put context on it, uh, 300 deaths due to COVID in the US makes COVID in children one of the top 10 causes of death in children. So the, the way I would do the calculus, and this is, you know, got to be individualized, right, with parents, mm -hmm. is to say, well, maybe there's a theoretical risk we have not seen that in 260 million doses. There's no reason to think that whether you're 12 or 15 or 25 or 45 or 75, that those are going to be any different. And we know a definite risk of COVID and circulation of COVID. Now, what's going to make this a little harder, I think, Helena, is that very likely, just like last year, we're going to see, as we are, this dip, 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 dip in number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And then as the fall and winter come, both because of the seasonality and because of kids going back to school, likely, I mean, a lot of um, uh, colleges and universities will restart. A lot of businesses are planning on having workers come back to the office. All that combined is a risk for a resurgence of this disease at that time with who knows what variant. So I think parents have a little bit of time to mm -hmm. think about this and consider it, but I personally would, be, would weigh that in favor of getting vaccinated before school or summer camp start. Greg, one of the articles that I had seen recently discussed that the CDC is now, um, aware of some perhaps cases of rare heart issues um, related to COVID infections in, in youth. And my question would be, is it possible that as this becomes a disease of younger individuals, if we might see more of that sort of as we did with the long haulers disease yeah. in, in adults? It's a really good question. And I don't wanna pretend that we have the answers on that mm -hmm. yet, but to give some background, what happened is that primarily in people under the age of 30 in Israel, they did detect, I think it was 62 or 65 cases 
of what's called myocarditis or pericarditis. Myocarditis just means inflammation of the heart muscle. Pericarditis means inflammation of, it kind of, if you'll pardon the analogy, it kind of looks like a piece of saran wrap like that, a sack. Lays, that lays over the heart. Um, so they've seen inflammation of that. That's, that, that is not um, uncommon. It, it mm -hmm. happens uh, in uh, people of all ages due to other viruses. So COVID alone can cause this. And the estimates are at a much higher rate than anything that might occur from the vaccine. So what's happened in the US is we, CDC has not released numbers. They, they're saying, quote, a handful or two of mm -hmm. cases out of four and a half million uh, vaccines that have been given. Um, they have occurred predominantly in males, usually within four days after getting the vaccine, is usually mild and resolves on its own. Now in Israel, I think what had people concerned is that of the 62 cases, two of them did die. So the question is, and this comes up with every side effect, are we seeing this rate of side effect any higher than we do in people who are not vaccinated or any higher than we did two years ago before there was any COVID or COVID vaccine? And at this point, all CDC has said is that it does not appear that this is anything other than background rate. That remains to be seen and data are being collected. So Greg, it's an, it's an issue related to potentially, it's being noted after the vaccine, not after infection with COVID-19. Oh, both, but much, both. Higher, bo much higher rates after COVID infection. I see. Okay. I just wanted to be sure that I was clear about yeah, that because no, I had- maybe, um, maybe I didn't say it clear, but a definite you know, elevated risk with COVID infection, what looks to be a background risk with COVID vaccination. Okay but okay. there's some unknown around that yet to be uh, uh, researched. Lots of unknowns still, aren't yeah, there? Yeah. We keep and, going. You know, and, you know, I, 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 I understand why this makes the, the public uneasy. Yes. Um, and and, and it's, it's a question of, and we've talked a little bit about this, how do you balance the known high risks of COVID against the unknown, but thus far, minuscule risks of the vaccine. And that's a tough equation for some people. I, I understand that. And uh, my, my plea would be, you know, go to credible sources, talk to your doctor, go to uh, CDC, Mayo Clinic, other large medical centers, websites, and you'll find credible information there. It is really difficult, Greg, but because it's new, I think. Otherwise, uh, most Americans have um, embraced the idea of vaccinations for yeah. other diseases that used yeah. to be potential, you know, measles, et cetera, things that used to be have high morbidity. And we do still see this in the United States among those who are not vaccinated, but um, yeah. have seen great uh, success with those vaccinations and low risk. Yeah. And, you know, there will be things that we discover Everything we've discovered so far has been at minuscule, you know, risk levels. For that person, it's real, but yes. but at a population level, you know, you're you're talking of of risks one in a million, or you know, mm -hmm. along those kind of odds. 
The risks of complications after COVID, as we've talked about, including long haul COVID, are considerably higher than that. And, and that's, the, that's the tough calculus for people. I feel perfectly well now. They look at a neighbor who may have gotten COVID and had a mild case, and they say, what's the big deal? But these vaccines seem kind of scary to me. I, I have often said, and obviously we can't do it, but I've often said it, it's too bad that we can't give a more balanced look at what COVID is doing. Take, take uh, movie cameras into the hospital. Again, we can't do that, uh, but, but let people see what happens. Interviews with otherwise young, healthy people whose lives now are, are just immensely impacted with post-COVID mm -hmm. uh, symptoms. And then a few trailing small numbers of people who feel they've been left with uh, issues or problems related to vaccines. But it's so unequal in numbers that I think that's the hard part for people. And as you said, the novelty of it. Right. Well, keep vaccinating, right? Yes. Thanks so much, Greg, for sharing yeah. today and for being here. My pleasure. Happy Monday. Thank you. Our thanks to Dr. Greg Poland from the Mayo Clinic for joining us today to talk about COVID-19 vaccinations and answer listener questions. Thank you for your questions. I know that I learned something today and I hope you did too. If you have, if you have other questions for us, please send them in. If you have ideas for topics that you'd like to hear about on Q&A, send those too. Or just wish everyone, Dr. Poland, right? <laughs> <laughs> we wish everyone a very wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all the Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.